the essence of my life was control. And it disintegrated at the end because all I wanted was more alcohol. It, at a certain phase, it became synonymous with breath itself. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. You just heard a clip from Armin Katayan's 2012 story on sports super agent Lee Steinberg. Steinberg built a career breaking the mold of the stereotypical sports agent. He was known as being virtuous and philanthropic, representing the biggest stars in the NFL, but seemingly doing it the right way. And he wasn't just signing stars, he was one himself. Steinberg went Hollywood when he became the inspiration for the hit film Jerry Maguire. But then came the fall. On today's podcast, we'll take you back to 2012 when Lee Steinberg was miles away from the high life. He was bankrupt, battling an addiction, and living in a small condo with a roommate. After you hear that piece, we'll be joined by Lee Steinberg to discuss how, in the almost 10 years since, his life and career have remarkably come full circle. He's back in the agency world, signing star clients like Patrick Mahomes and Tua Tagovailoa. We'll also chat about a number of topics relevant to the upcoming NFL season as week one rapidly approaches. But first, here's Armin Katayan's 2012 Real Sports story on Lee Steinberg. I'm sitting in my, my parents' house at 61 years of age, and I've lost my office. I have no home. I've gone through unspendable amounts of money. And I thought, is this what I was put on this planet to do? To end up like this. To, to end up uh, drinking on my mother's bed, um, alienating all the people who believed in me. Before the fall, before he hit rock bottom on his mother's bed, Lee Steinberg was the most powerful sports agent on the planet. But today he is bankrupt and fighting an addiction that he says cost him everything. How much of this was just pure self-destruction? All of it. The essence of my life was control. And um, it disintegrated at the end um, because all I wanted was more alcohol. It, at a certain phase, it became synonymous with breath itself. What were you drinking? I mean, is it a vodka? Vodka. I mean, a liter a day, a half gallon. What do you? What's? I got to the point where I bought the 1750 milliliter, which is a big plastic thing, and I carried that around and drank from it. At his peak in the 1980s and 90s, Steinberg represented about 90 of the NFL's best players. At one point, 24 quarterbacks were under his wing including future Hall of Famers Steve Young, Warren Moon, and Troy Aikman. Every spring, like clockwork, there'd be Steinberg sitting next to the next big thing, the number one pick of the NFL draft. In one stretch, he represented the top pick six out of seven years, and his annual Saturday afternoon Super Bowl parties were legendary, the hottest ticket in town. He says the key to his success was that he presented himself as a visionary, an anti-agent, 
preaching morality, integrity, and ethics. In fact, it was Steinberg who in part inspired the Tom Cruise character in the blockbuster movie Jerry Maguire, the idealistic sports agent who wanted to change the world. Lee, it's fair to say you broke the mold when it came to defining what an agent um, would become and a set of values, a core mission. My mission was to try and push good fundamental values and show young people that they could be successful in society and to tell them that their life needed to have meaning. They needed to leave a legacy and make the world different. Over the years, Steinberg and his players donated tens of millions of dollars to charities. He was also outspoken about player safety and concussions long before anyone else, all of which helped create an image that attracted the very best players in the league. Lee Steinberg was the guy and the type of client, not just the caliber, but the type of client that Lee attracted. You know, they were, they were high character guys. They were, um, you know, leaders, you know, the kind of guy that, that you aspire to be. Quarterback Drew Bledsoe was the number one pick in the 1993 draft. He says that Steinberg's laid-back style only added to his appeal. you got to realize I'm from Walla Walla, Washington, tiny little farming community. I'm this small-town kid. I come down to California, you know, walk into this office, and instead of, instead of the stereotypical lawyer buttoned up and tie and all this, leaves in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and some flip-flops, and his hair's kind of all messy, and it was, you know, it just it made it easy. Steinberg was a child of the 60s who went to Berkeley to earn his law degree. He figured he'd become a public interest attorney or maybe a politician before fate intervened in the form of Cal's star quarterback, Steve Bartkowski, who lived in the same dorm where Steinberg was working and asked his 25-year-old friend to represent him. It was 1975. The first client I ever had was the first pick in the NFL draft. That's a pretty good sign. We ended up with the uh, largest rookie contract in NFL history. It eclipsed O.J. Simpson and Joe Namath, who were the previous standard bearers. Steinberg had found his calling. He broke into the big time in 1984, when Steve Young signed a record-setting $42 million contract with the upstart USFL. Almost overnight, he rose from a quirky California agent to an outright superstar. But as the 90s wore on, the signs of stress, the need to decompress, began to surface. Over the years, I was living in the Disneyland of drinking, and so it was very easy to um, do what everybody else did. In 1996, he was arrested for drunk driving. That same year, he attended Drew Bledsoe's wedding and lost control again. I had a handful of friends come to me at our reception and say, who's, who's that guy? I was like, oh, that's my super agent. That's the biggest agent in the sports world. And they're like, wow. You know, he's the drunkest guy at the party. Bledsoe says this was just the first of several drunken episodes he experienced. Despite Steinberg's drinking, he was about to reach an entirely new level of fame. Show me the money! Jerry Maguire premiered in late 1996 and was a huge hit, offering Steinberg this moment in the sun. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? Remember Troy from the Super Bowl party? Yeah, sure. Hey, Jerry. In its wake, he wrote a best-selling book, hit the lecture circuit, and embraced the media spotlight. But behind the scenes, clients like Bledsoe had grown tired of Steinberg's self-promotion, neglect, and drunken behavior. 
So right before Bledsoe was about to sign a new $100 million deal with the Patriots, a deal negotiated by Steinberg protege David Dunn, the quarterback made a move. I went to David Dunn. I said, hey, you know, you can either leave and start your own firm and I'll go with you. Um, or um, I'm just going to walk and go someplace else because, you know, this guy can't be my agent anymore. At some point, this thing's going to end badly for Lee is what it came to. And when it went down, when it ended badly, I didn't want to be on that ship with him. Turns out few did. Some 50 players followed Bledsoe out the door as well as a third of Steinberg's staff. They all signed up with, you guessed it, David Dunn's brand-new agency, Athletes First. In response, Steinberg sued Dunn for stealing his clients, and in the fall of 2002, they squared off in a nasty six-week trial. It was a horror show. It was a horror show. On the stand, Bledsoe recalled several episodes of uncontrolled drinking including the night Steinberg wiped out a hotel minibar. Former employees added charges of sexual harassment and a toxic work environment. Another dropped a bomb about a prostitute stealing Steinberg's wallet during a wild night in Vegas. You were depicted as boorish, unstable, abusive, out of touch with your clients, a drunk and a, and a womanizer. I mean, am I missing anything there that they said about you? Um... I also killed Christ. How much of that is true, Lee? There were uh, seeds of that that were true. I was drinking too much. I never womanized. So what about the incident in, in Vegas with the prostitute? It's just not true. It's not true? No. Were you abusive to your employees? No, I would never do that. But in the end, Lee, you lose two-thirds of your clients and a third of your office employees walk out the door. Carmen, people I cared about had felt driven to leave our firm and they had gone to a series of untruths, some that had a kernel of reality to them, and actually went on the stand and testified. And do you know what the jury said? We didn't believe half of that. The jury ruled in Steinberg's favor, a ruling eventually overturned on appeal. But the damage was done. He never got his 50 clients back, and his reputation was destroyed. In terms of the public um, imagery, it was terrible. But it didn't stop me from going on in a couple of years and rebuilding a practice. Rebuild he did, and by the 2006 Super Bowl, he was back on track with Pittsburgh quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. I was sitting in Detroit. I had Ben Roethlisberger, who was starting that game. We had Warren Moon and Troy Aikman up for the Hall of Fame. So as I sat there in 2006, it was like everything was back. But the good times didn't last. Later that same year, Steinberg's marriage of 21 years came to an end. He became estranged from his three children and lost his NFL agent's license after an employee took out a $300,000 loan from one of their clients, an egregious violation of NFL rules. I was massively depressed, and I started to use alcohol in a more expanded way to deal with that. And I started to episodically check out for a day, a day and a half. When you say check out, describe a check out day for me. Sitting uh, in my apartment looking over the Pacific Ocean with a big bottle of vodka. Drinking straight out of the bottle? Absolutely. 
Steinberg's life was spiraling out of control. In 2007, he was arrested for drunk driving. The following year, police found him screaming on the side of a hill near his office in Newport Beach and arrested him again on suspicion of public drunkenness. I had started drinking in the day, so I went for a walk. The problem is, is that my alcohol level got too high and I was sort of hanging out on a, on a hill, sitting in a vacant lot, you know, just singing away and making noise. And uh, I ended up in Hogue Hospital in a diaper, not knowing where I was. That's pretty close to, to bottom as I could ever get. That's a hard image to comprehend, Lee. I mean, Lee Steinberg and a diaper. I mean, that's just, for you, that had to be. That's where my addiction took me. Steinberg was in and out of rehab until he finally found a 12-step program that worked for him. He says he's been sober for almost two years now. That's the good news. The bad news is that just last month he filed for bankruptcy, listing over $3 million in debts. Bad investments, the divorce, and the loss of his business have cleaned him out, he says. This is home sweet home. Today, at 62, there's no house overlooking the Pacific, just this modest two-bedroom condo he shares with a roommate. At night, he teaches a law class at Cal Irvine about the art of negotiating. Because I actually want to prepare you for being able to get real clients. His sights um, now set on a rise from the ashes, on representing NFL players again. A testament to the warnings he failed to heed. Here, in the end, you become the example of what you never wanted anybody to become. If my story is a cautionary note to anyone out there who's struggling with any kind of substance abuse. There is help. It is possible, but you need to put everything else in your life aside and focus on it. So in a unwanted way, I hopefully still can do some good to ease the pain of other people. And we're now joined by the man himself, Lee Steinberg. Lee, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. So, Lee, we left you in that 2012 story, battling your addiction, bankrupt, working as a professor. Did you ever consider maintaining a simpler lifestyle, or did you always know you wanted to work your way back to being an agent? So I worked a 12-step program with a unique fellowship. And day by day, reinforced my sobriety. And I went to sober living and lived there for about nine months. And gradually, I wanted to make sure that I had covered being a good parent and that I was at least far enough along in sobriety that I felt not that I was a finished product, but that I had things to offer in the world again. So tell me about that. How did the road back start? How did you go about getting back on your feet and resurrecting your career and also accomplishing some of those goals you mentioned? A group of businessmen in Houston came and funded me to go back and start representing athletes. 
and we built slowly. Then in 2014, I had written a book called The Agent, and I used that to go back on 85 college campuses and sort of reintroduce myself to a whole younger generation. And then we started years ago with Garrett Gilbert, whose father, Gail, I had represented, who went to a whole series of Super Bowls. So it was a father-son combo. And then we had a breakthrough in 2016 when Paxton Lynch asked us to represent him. And he ended up uh, being drafted by the Denver Broncos. So that was a real breakthrough. And then the next year came Patrick Mahomes. No one could have predicted he would have been such an instant success. But we continued building with uh, players like Tua, Tongo, Vailoa, Jerry Judy of uh, Denver. So I continued with the same philosophy, which was the athlete is role model, going back to the high school community, setting up a scholarship fund or working with the Boys and Girls Club. So we've been training younger people that have ethics and values and can make a real difference to try to pay it forward. You mentioned those values that are core to your brand. They were core to your brand back then. Has it been harder to kind of regain that trust in the NFL community? And I wonder, Lee, did it change your sales pitch to prospective clients after you had suffered this very personal and public fall from grace? So remember what I didn't do. We always had values and ethics. I was self-destructive. But the point was I had all those years of honest dealings and trust with players, the friendships I had at the ownership and general manager and coaching level never went away. People were very supportive throughout. But look, if you're starting again, you know that People will say, well, how can you guarantee that you'll stay sober? And the answer is you can't. You can just do the work necessary to maintain sobriety. So it meant being open and transparent about the problems I'd been through, about what I did now to maintain my sobriety. And this year I entered my 12th year of continuous sobriety. Patrick Mahomes is the biggest fish on your client roster and in the league, period. Take me back, Lee, inside that pitch meeting. How did he end up signing with you? So most of the meetings we had with the Mahomes were with the parents. And so we had met with them probably four or five times prior to ever meeting Patrick. But there was a bonding. They wanted their son to be a role model. They had raised him with great fundamental values. And we knew that he was undervalued in football initially because Texas Tech had a very porous defense and they had to score on every drive. But that was different than projecting him with his freakish athletic ability, arm, maturity, intelligence to be a pro success. And then it didn't hurt where at pro scouting day he stood on his 25-yard line and put the ball through the other end zone. What he can do with his arm is sort of unbelievable and superhuman. 
Yeah, you saw something in him, surely. But uh, I want to ask you, Lee, about another new client of yours, not an NFL player, Spencer Rattler, quarterback at Oklahoma, who signed with you after changes made to name, image, and likeness rules have allowed college players to make some money before they turn pro. Is this going to be a, a prominent new focus of your agency? And should we be expecting bidding wars among you and your peers for more or less any and every rising star in the college ranks moving forward? Well, it's a revolutionary concept which changes the dynamic, and it's long overdue. We've had a situation for many years where an athlete from a middle class or more wealthy family goes on the college campus and he can live just fine on the money his parents send him and, and the scholarship. And then you have other athletes who may be sending part of the scholarship home and come from economically tougher circumstances. And they look up in the stands and they see the crowds and they know what the TV contracts are and they have seen their jersey in the student store. And we're not talking about having them live like the Sultan of Brunei, but just enough money to be able to have a car be able to have a lifestyle similar to their non-athletic peers. It was recently announced that a highly touted high school quarterback, Quinn Ewers, is skipping his senior year so he can enroll early at Ohio State and profit off of his NIL rights. I think many agree, as you just noted, these young men and women should be able to profit from their talents like any college student. But how young is too young, Lee? And do you and your agency have a limit on how young of a client you would sign. Where I think it becomes problematic, or at least an issue to think through, is where there's so much marketing and pizzazz and hoopla around a young athlete who hasn't done anything on the field yet. So it could create pressure if you have billboards everywhere and commercials on television, and now the quarterback throws the first two picks of his career. The developmental process is they'll have to go through that, but it could create an awkward situation if we're not careful. So no, we don't have a doctrine that says no high school players. You would have to find the right one and get him to agree to build the marketing in a way that doesn't put more pressure on him or make him look foolish. There's been a great deal of recent debate, Lee, surrounding the NFL's handling of player vaccination. Uh, for those who haven't been following this, the league has applied tremendous pressure on players to be vaccinated, creating a system where vaccinated players have much more leeway than unvaccinated in terms of how they operate day to day. This has been polarizing, to say the least. What are you hearing from your clients regarding the NFL's policies? There are clients, a few of them, who are anti-vaccine. They either don't want it because they suspect that the process would rush too much of developing them, or the more paranoid point of view is there might be something in them. And I respect those people and their point of view. But in order to maintain the safety of those who have been vaccinated and to make sure that we don't get a big epidemic of cases in pro football, I think it's fair to create systems that direct behavior where 
you would like it to be. I mean, we all wear seat belts. Some of us feel like we don't need them, but there's all sorts of things that come with part of a job where people are giving up certain rights. So they haven't mandated it. They're just making it clear that if you choose not to be vaccinated, you're going to have more scrutiny. And I think that protects players. There's been some question as to whether these vaccination decisions will unofficially weigh on teams' decision-making as they cut down their rosters in a few weeks. And that if you're on the roster bubble and you're unvaccinated, a team may be more inclined to cut you loose. Do you anticipate that being the case? I think it's a real consideration because if you looked at teams that had multiple players opt out last year, um, a team like the Patriots just didn't do as well. And so in the same way that teams look at a player with multiple injuries and a certain part of his body, is it going to give way again? Part of the key in excelling in professional football is that you're there and playing. And so how much of a factor it could be, you, you don't know. I continue to believe that talent will win out and that talented players will end up composing the rosters. But in a marginal case, could it matter? I'm sure it could. You obviously have your finger on the pulse and you're well-connected in the league. Do you anticipate with the recent spike in cases that the league may implement restrictions on crowds and things like that, or, or leave it up to state governments and individual clubs? Well, leave it up to state governments, I think, and individual clubs. But if it were to become too bad, then they might go back to last year with testing and with masks and all the rest of it. Remember, there's in football, except for a dome stadium, the contagion, I'm not a doctor and don't pretend to be one, but supposed to be safer outdoors and football is played outdoors. So I have thought all along that they would have sellout crowds. Baseball's back and Dodgers are selling out every night and it doesn't seem to have spiked anything. So Again, you have unvaccinated people, by and large, are the ones getting hurt. I care about the safety of fans. I care about the safety of players and coaches and administrators. So I'm sure they'll figure out whatever is appropriate at the time. Something unrelated, and I'll, I'll get you out on this, Lee. You've written in the past about how athletes should be permitted and encouraged to be more socially and politically engaged. The NFL, of course, has been challenged regarding their commitment to social justice. Do you feel the league is doing enough now in that space? And do your clients? They've been much more active. If you watched last year, there were all sorts of PSAs. There was all sorts of consciousness raising content that the league did. I believe they've made contributions to a number of organizations. So I think they're doing more. But I encourage players to be politically active, just to be careful about the use of the stadium to do it, because you've got a disparate crowd filled with people from different political beliefs and everything else. But part of the problem with athletes has been the concept of self-absorption, that they live in a little colony, that they're and it doesn't prepare them very well for second career. 
or for a longer life. So the fact that someone wants to write an article or give a speech at a rally or give a charitable donation, I think it's great. Well, Lee, you've certainly had a remarkable journey back to the epicenter of the sports agency world. It's great to have you on to update your story and discuss these various topics. So we we thank you so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports Podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on August 24th. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.